you watch a movie, and it's amazing. People love it. They talk about it. They're crying for more. And then Netflix gets this great big idea. Let's make a sequel. The story doesn't quite need it, but the fan base wants it. And so, and the producers know they're going to make a lot of money off of this, so they throw words against the wall, find a script, build it, and then the people tune in, and then you get garbage. I don't know if that's been your experience, but that happens often. I was going through some, a list in my mind of movies in the past. The Next Karate Kid, Speed 2, Transformers, Age of Extinction, Independence Day, Resurgence, Space Jam, A New Legacy. These movies did not need to exist. <laughs> now, of course, there are the franchises that somehow do both, where there's like, that did not need to exist, but these really needed to exist. I love Star Wars, and I hate Star Wars. It's complicated. Um, um, but I still remember the, in the, the first time, the first time I saw the first movie, the fourth movie, um, and they introduced the force. And my mind was exploding with like, what is going on in this strange other universe? I loved it. Um, and we were thrown into this story. The universe was in conflict. There was all sorts of stuff going on that we knew there was a backstory. Why a new hope? Why not an old hope? What, what's going on? What's already happened in this place? How did the universe end up where it's at now? So you have these scenes that are etched into our minds and etched into our culture. Um, and near the end of the first movie, first movie, um, this old man who we've only known for one episode sacrifices himself to let Luke and the crew escape to eventually destroy the Death Star. I'm I don't know. I don't, I don't know why I feel compelled to tell you all of this information about this movie, but anyways. So as Darth Vader, right, strikes down Obi-Wan Kenobi, he exclaims, this will be a day long remembered. It has seen the end of Kenobi. It will soon see the end of the rebellion. And I'm thinking, who is this guy? Like, why does this all matter? This seems like this huge epic moment, and I'm, am I missing something? Well, Everything about the end of A New Hope signals that this is part of something more, something greater, part of a grander story. And unlike Space Jam, A New Legacy, or Speed 2, the story truly does continue. And it has continued into this like next amazing, and to be honest, The Empire Strikes Back, I really, really loved. Because particularly near the very end, there's this moment, it's a terrible, great moment, where Vader's like, join me, and I will complete your training, and with our combined strength, we can end this destructive conflict and bring order to the galaxy. And then Luke's like, I'll never join you. It's so bad. If you've not seen it, you should just watch just that clip. And then he's like, if you only knew the power of the dark side, Obi-Wan never told you. What happened to your father? And he's like, he told me enough. He told me you killed him. No, I am your father. No, no, it's impossible. And then Vader's like, search your feelings. You know it to be true. And he's like, no. It's 
it's a, a different kind of acting. It, <laughs> yeah, I, it, that's all I'll say. Oh, there it is. Yep, that marked in my memory for all time. There it is. Um, in the first century, I think you might know where this is going. In the first century, there was a story written, an account of events eyewitness accounts brought together forming a picture of reality. We can, we don't need that to distract us anymore. A picture of reality um, that was turned upside down for all time. So there was a man named Luke, an educated Jewish physician who was a follower of this new Jewish movement. He was one of those who was a follower of the way. A surprising, ethnically diverse group spread throughout the Roman world. And this group kept making an outrageous claim that a man by the name of Jesus was the true and living king. That this Jesus was the promised savior of Israel. But more than that, of the entire universe. And despite having been murdered on a Roman cross, which eyewitnesses saw, these people continued to claim that he was the God-man who remained and was not dead, that he was alive, and that this was changing everything, that he was still in charge. So this Luke, a man who never walked with Jesus, but he knew and walked with those who had, he compiled a story. He brought together verified texts and other writings, and it, I'll let him speak for himself. In Luke 1, 1 to 5, he says this, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, uh, just as they were handed down to us from those who were, the, who were the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, King, in time of Herod, King of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, and the story continues. It's clear that this story of Jesus is situated within a larger story. That there is a huge back story. But then he continues on with that story. And when he finishes that chapter, he goes to part two. And part two opens with us right in the middle of events. And we need to listen really close to what this first sentence says in Acts. It is a foundational scene that presents a fundamental idea. Acts 1, 1 to 2. I'll read it again. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Did you hear it? Well, you heard me say it, but did you hear that little bit that changes everything? And to be honest, when I grew up, I never really noticed this language. I never really noticed the word choice. All that Jesus began to do and to teach. Those words mean something. This book, commonly called the Acts of the Apostles, is all about what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. 
N.T. Wright, a loved and respected New Testament scholar and pastor, he says it like this. The mysterious presence of Jesus haunts this whole story. He is announced as King and Lord, not as an increasingly distant memory, but as a living and powerful reality. A person who can be known and loved, obeyed and followed. A person who continues to act within the real world. That, Luke is telling us, is what this book is going to be all about. We call it the Acts of the Apostles, but in truth, we should think of it as the Acts of Jesus, part two. So we're starting a brand new sermon series um, entitled Unstoppable. And here's the question that kind of sits at the back of my mind throughout this entire sermon series. With all the hurdles, all the obstacles, all of the confusion, the persecution, the infighting, the deaths, the scandals, how on earth did this Jesus movement remain unstoppable? I love the energy and the excitement of the early church as they discovered God going and doing a new thing in unpredictable and new ways. It was full of weird events, dilemmas, problems, and a lot of those problems we face today. Leadership issues, money trouble, ethnic divisions, culture wars, serious clashes with political and religious authorities. It sounds a little bit like our world too. And despite it all, they, the disciples, and the gospel they were proclaiming, it continued to be unstoppable. Um, Here's another question that kind of comes to my mind when we get into the book of Acts. How has this group of followers been able to fulfill Jesus' command that we heard read earlier so well? In verses 1, 8, uh, chapter 1, verses 8, he says that you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. How is that possible? How How does this group of people go from there to where it's clear that they ended up? I like what this wise Jewish Jewish Pharisee says in Acts 15, or Acts 5, 34. I'd like to read this to you. It won't be up on the screen. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel... Consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, um, Thidas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all of his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean, he appeared in the days of the census, and he led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. 
It's a beautiful picture of what we know and what ends up being a prophetic response. Our standing here today is a response. But how did that happen? How did it endure? See, the normal church, the normal church life is not smooth sailing and it wasn't smooth sailing for them. But somehow, through it all, the church was able to take the good news out to the whole world and do it in a dynamic way. So what can we learn from this early community? What can we learn from the people that came before us that paved the way? So that's what our sermon series for the next five weeks is going to be all about. It's going to be observing this and feeling invited into it. We're not just going to watch it take place in the past, but we're going to ask the question, how does this connect to our lives? How does their events, their stories, their journey with Jesus fit with us? So this ne- these next five weeks, we're going to go through Acts 1 to 12. So it's the first half of the book of Acts. There's a natural stopping point because after that, um, it goes from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then we stop. That's what we're going to do. And then later in the year, we're going to go into the ends of the earth. All right? So that's how we're going to set it up. Um, I'm excited about it because the book of Acts is where we can really bump into these people trying to figure it out. Acts is not some Netflix joke attempt at a sequel. Acts continues the story of what Jesus does and teaches. And we get to be challenged, we get to be changed, we get to be renewed as we reflect on this journey. Um, I've always enjoyed making fun of the disciples. I've always found that to be something fun for me as a pastor to do. This dopey, confused, ragtag group of people that often like blurt out these random statements and you're thinking, what are they up to? What are they doing? There are these bumbling, all of these sad mistakes. Um, And to be honest, it's kind of fun because it makes them a little bit more approachable. However, if I'm honest, the older I get the more I appreciate um, who these individuals were. Because the older I get, the more and more clueless I feel. Um, The more and more utterly dependent I recognize my life in faith needs to be on Jesus, on his way, on the Holy Spirit. And so while it's fun to make fun of them, they actually really are a true picture of the human condition. And I probably shouldn't poke fun at them as often as I have in the past. So for the next couple of minutes, the next 10 minutes here, I'd like to draw your attention to what seems or what could have been the first great hurdle that stopped the disciples. Let's go to Acts 1 verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid from their sight, hid him from their sights. So they're up there staring. Well, Andrew, Philip, he's, what, what do we do now? Like, he's, he's, we've spent these three years together, hanging out with him. He's said all of these things. I know he said for us to, like, go, but, like, he's gone. He's up, up somewhere. 
You know, we could think that way. We could feel that this is a moment. This is the end. He's ascended. Da-da! Glorious, right? The greatest coronation of all time. And then they... And then what? At first glance, it could feel that it's almost over. That it's ended. Why bother going on with what he suggested us do now that he's ascended? But for these disciples... And for the readers of Luke's account, this is not what's taking place. To float up into the sky, the disciples never would have thought, I wonder if he's up in space, like on a moon or in the sky or in the stars. Um, They wouldn't have thought that way. Um, They clearly would not have thought it to be over. And they would have seen that the story of Jesus continues They would have understood that Jesus has now entered God's realm, God's dimension. After Jesus' resurrection, he was constantly demonstrating to them that he was able to somehow live in God's space as well as Earth's space, our space. That he was able to move in and out and between and occupy both at the same time even. And that he wasn't a ghost who was somehow less human. He was more. He was more true. He was more complete. He was the first one who could inhabit both God's realm, heaven, and the earthly realm. Now we have, what else happens in this story, in this ascension event? So there was a cloud that hid him. Now, while it might escape our thinking, and I might not have thought much about this until you dig in and you do the research, um, but that when there's a cloud, where, where in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament was there a connection to the cloud? You only have to jump back a little bit in Luke's story where you have Elijah and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Where Luke is talking about this account where Jesus and all of them, while he was speaking, this is in Luke 9, 34, while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And then a voice from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. So there's this connection with cloud, And then what other cloud events took place in Israel's history? You might recall there were the mountains, the mountain in Exodus. There was the cloud that guided Israel and that it rested in front of the tabernacle or the cloud that filled the temple. All of these moments, these cloud moments, are reminders and pointing at God's realm coming into earth's realm. God's presence invading our presence in a unique and special way. That the veil between heaven and earth is not as distant and is not as thick as one might imagine. And so he's going up And there's a cloud. What's that? Also, if you're steeped in Jewish literature, um, and you are following Jesus, and you're seeing this happening, it's possible that Daniel 7 might be running through your mind. In Daniel 7, there's this prophetic vision. In verse 13, it says this, In my vision... At night I looked, and there before me was a man, was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. 
He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Thursday, September 8th, 2022, when I heard the news of Queen Elizabeth's passing, it felt surreal. Uh, It's all I've ever known. It's all most of us have ever known. Uh, And her dominion over her realm for 70 years That's unbelievable. It's the longest reign of any British monarch. Our coins, our buildings, our benches. Uh, She's been a part of it all. And she's remained so long that we started to feel like it would never pass. But sadly, it has. Her authority is done. And for that... um, And it it shakes the foundations for a lot of people. I know that if my grandpa was still alive, this would be a terrible week for him. He was a big fan of the British monarchy. In this Daniel passage, there sits a promise that the disciples are witnessing right in front of them. The ascension of King Jesus to be the sovereign over all for all time. There will never be a moment when this will change. There will never be a change of authority. Jesus was and is and always will be. And the disciples are caught up in this most glorious of events. This, for a Jewish man or woman that's understanding all of this and seeing this happen, there is so much more than Jesus leaving. He did not leave. He just went to his place of authority and leadership over all realms. God's realm and earth's realm. Our realm too. But there's actually a little bit more. And for a non-Jewish reader, a Gentile reader, for a Gentile reader, we have a little bit more that we can take from this. Now, N.T. Wright again, he describes it this way. When a Roman emperor died... It had become customary to declare that someone had seen his soul escaping from his body and going up to heaven. If you were to go to the top end of the forum in Rome, stand under the arch of Titus, and look up, you will see a carving of the soul of Titus who was emperor in the 80s. So that's in the first century. Ascending to heaven. The message of this was clear. The message of this was clear. The emperor was becoming a god, thus enabling his son and heir to style himself as son of God, which is a useful title if you plan to rule the world, I would say. But the parallel, this is important, the parallel is not so close to the same. Since Luke is clear that this was not Jesus' soul that ascended into heaven, leaving a body behind somewhere, but his whole, renewed, bodily, complete self. So there, in this sense, Jesus is upstaging anything the Roman emperors might imagine for themselves. He is the reality, and they are the parody. 
So what do we make of this event? What, what is the response? What, what do we do with this? Well, what did the disciples do with this earth-shattering event? This moment of ultimate declaration, this glorious event of Jesus ascending. Let's go back to Acts 1, 9 to 11. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Um, They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, why, why, why are you, why, why do you stand here looking into the sky? I like to think of this moment as an awe-inspired stupor. I, I've probably had those moments in my own life where you're just gawking up to heaven. Um, how long would they have stayed there if they didn't get that little nudge? Lost in wonder, lost in the weight of it all, lost in in the truth that was like too much to handle. It left them numb, it left them dumb. And in that moment, there was this divine nudge. God, in his mercy, sends two angels. Why are you standing there looking into the sky? These angels then provided this divine moment to push them and remind them that the story was not finished. That their story as disciples has not ended that day. I was just at an optometrist appointment the other day, um, getting my eyes examined. And before I met with the doctor, there were these like three machines. So the first machine like checked my vision and then it like checked my eye pressure. That's the worst. Like I knew this like puff of air was going to come into my eye and they're like, don't blink. And I'm like, okay. And they're like, okay, we have to do it again. You blinked. Okay. I'm like, okay. Like, I don't know how to do this. They're like, eventually we figured it out. And then we went to the next station, which was like taking these photos of the back of my eye and all of this. But then I went to this new station. I've not been to this before. And I had to look in in through this screen. And there was this like grid. I'll put the grid up here. And then they had these like wiggles happening all over the place as I stared at the dot, right? So I'm staring at this dot like really intently. I have a clicker. I'm like, this is kind of like a video game. Like I've, I've done this before, just not so boring. And so I'm staring and I'm like, I see a little squiggle over here and I click it, click it, click it, click it. It was for my peripheral vision to check to see how everything was. But after that, I was like working so hard to like stare at that dot that when I like pulled away, I was like, whoa, okay, what just happened here? The disciples were caught in such a disorienting season. You know, they they were focused on Jesus. They were trying to keep their attention on Jesus. And then all of a sudden, he's being taken to a cross. So we have Jesus the Messiah. Messiah. Now we have Jesus the dead man. And they're thinking, wait, what just happened? And then all of a sudden, there's Jesus the resurrected man. Jesus the one who appears on the street. Jesus who appears eating food. Jesus who connects here and does this and shares this. And they're like, how is this real? How is this possible? And then all of this comes together and he commands them to go into the ends of the earth and they're watching him leave. And I think all of that was kind of like some sort of mental whiplash that just left them dumbstruck. And I would have too. I I would have been stuck on that mountain, staring up, wondering what's going on. 
I have a bit of compassion for where they were at. So these disciples were momentarily stuck, numb to the world and their call, their mission, overwhelmed by the whiplash of life being rewritten in front of them. But then along comes this divine nudge and pushes them back into their call, back into their mission, reminding them that, that, reminding them that Jesus is king forever, that he is coming back in the same way that he came, meaning that he is continuing on. The story is not done. It continues. And all I can say in my own life is that I am so thankful that God sends me divine nudges, that he pushes me from time to time. Trent, why are you staring off into the middle of nowhere? Like, get on with your call. Get on with your story. Your mission hasn't ended. Your king is not dead. Your mission, your purpose is still in front of you. Has, has God ever nudged you out of your stupor? Kind of just pushed you a little bit as you're like, oh, life, it's all so much. And he's just like, hey, like, what, what are you staring up there for? Like, how about we get on with it? I'm so thankful that we have a God right at the very beginning of this story who's nudging his people forward, making sure that they don't stop, making sure that the gospel continues on. And once they're nudged out of their stupor, they continue on and they worship. Now, by God's grace and mercy in my own life, and I think in some of our lives, there's these divine nudges. Now, for many of us, Sunday service, Sunday morning, is a divine nudge. Right, that weekly encounter where we are reminded that God is up to something in our world and in our lives. That he is one. But maybe for some of us, the divine nudge is more like small groups. Where you're in a deep interaction, conversations, honest interactions with other people talking about real challenges, real problems. And it stirs up hope. It stirs up dreams. It gets you talking about your purpose. And for I know a lot of us, those divine nudges come when we serve others. When we're in that moment of loving another person, working with the kids, working with the youth, serving our neighbor, building the fence, doing whatever, that in these moments, there's that divine nudge that wakes us up, that we are not done, our story is not finished, your story is not done, it's not just part one and then like throw it out, but it continues forward. And when the reality of Jesus and who he truly was, they were brought back out of their stupor, what did they do? They went back to Jerusalem. They gathered with their community and they prayed and they worshiped. And this is how the book of Acts starts. I love it. Jesus is not dead. He is alive and he is enthroned in glory and he continues to teach, guide, and lead his people However, in a slightly different way, but it still remains truly his leadership and his authority. I would like us to pray. And while, while I'm praying, my encouragement is perhaps some of you are like, I, I really could use a divine nudge. I could use just a little push from the Lord. Then my, my invitation to you is that you just make a very simple prayer. God, nudge me. God, nudge me. God, I am open to, do, uh, to a divine encounter. 
that wakes me up out of my stupor, reminds me that you are coming back, that you're, you are reigning forever. Help me to live with that in mind. I'm going to pray, and then we'll close with a worship song. Heavenly Father, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. You are sovereign for all time. Your leadership never ends. And Lord, when you ascended into heaven, you did not leave us. You entered into God's realm, and I am so thankful that you, through the Holy Spirit, continue to direct, guide, inspire, and be for the church. Even in this very beginning of this story, the disciples are caught up watching you and you nudge them forward. You nudge them to respond. You nudge them to get on with the mission, on with the call. And Lord, I just pray that that would be a challenge for us today. That we would sense your invitation. That we would feel a nudge from you, Holy Spirit. That our story is not done. That it is not over for any of us. It doesn't matter how old. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter what we haven't done. You are not done writing our story with you. And that you, Jesus, are available and interested in joining with creation through your Holy Spirit. And Heavenly Father, I just ask that you would speak through your Holy Spirit to anyone here that who has not yet made a decision to follow after Jesus, the King who is reigning forever. And that today, as we worship, as we sing to you, as we do what the early disciples did after the ascension of Jesus, that they would find themselves saying yes to you, Jesus, that they would turn from their sin, that they would repent, and that they would believe in the name of Jesus that the name of Jesus brings salvation and that you are not just an idea, but you are a living, real presence. Lord, I ask that you would, by your spirit, rest upon us, your church, and that as we journey through the book of Acts, that we would find connections with our forefathers, with our ancient predecessors that forged a path of obedience to you. Lord, what made them unstoppable? How can we find that and help us to live in such a way? Thank you that you do not leave us gawking, staring, waiting, but that you nudge us and push us forward. May as we worship now, be one more nudge in the direction of living for you and living in the way of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and worship with me?